Can you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3? And I begin this morning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Paul closes this chapter with prayer, which has been his pattern. He teaches and then he prays. We saw that in chapter 1. He taught for half the chapter and then he prayed to close out the chapter. Now he taught chapter 2 and halfway through chapter 3, and now he's going to pray to close out this chapter. And if you'll notice back in chapter 1 and verse 15, and here in chapter 3 and verse 14, these prayers begin with the very same words, for this reason. In other words, based on what he has taught us. And what has Paul been teaching us? Well, the emphasis in chapter 2 and into chapter 3 has been that Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God and to each other. When we were dead in our sins, strangers from God's people, without Christ, without God, without hope, God, by grace, through faith, saved us, redeemed us, forgave us, made us alive, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenlies, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He made us holy and blameless. He adopted us as sons. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. He made known to us His will. He gave us an inheritance. He placed resurrection power inside of us. He revealed His eternal mystery to us. And He made us recipients of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And in the process, he has broken down the barrier between Jew and Gentile so that we are now fellow members of the same body. We're fellow members of the same kingdom. We're brothers and sisters in the same family, the family of God. We are fellow stones in a holy temple in which God dwells. And Paul says, for this reason, I'm going to pray for you. Now, when we compare those two prayers, the prayer at the end of chapter 1 and the prayer at the end of chapter 3, they're similar and yet different. Because in chapter 1, the emphasis is on the fact that we might know. And there Paul prays that we might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. He prays that the eyes of our hearts might be opened so that we might know what is the hope of His calling, the glory of His inheritance, the greatness of His power. And so the emphasis there is on knowing. The emphasis in chapter 3 is on experience. He prays that the Spirit of God might strengthen us in the inner man so that Christ will dwell in us, so that we'll be rooted and grounded in love, so that we'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul's prayer in chapter 1 is that we'll know what we have in Christ. His prayer in chapter 3 is that we'll use it. And that really serves as a transition to the last half of the book of Ephesians, which is the practical part of the book. Now Paul introduces the prayer by describing his posture in verse 14. He says, I bow my knees. Now scripture nowhere lays down rules for posture in prayer. Sometimes we do. We say, bow your head close your eyes, fold your hands. Scripture never tells us that. We see all kinds of posture in Scripture. Daniel kneeled, Moses sat, David lay prostrate on the ground. The publican in the temple stood. Jesus looked into heaven. 1 Timothy 2.8 says we're to lift up holy hands. Ray Stedman tells a story of an argument between several people about the best posture for prayer. And one fellow said, it's standing looking into heaven because you're closer to God. And the other said, well, no, it's it's sitting with your head bowed because there's less distractions. And another said, well, no, it's, it's, it's on your knees because it's not very comfortable and it keeps you awake. 
And a fellow overheard the conversation, and he said, uh, I can't say what the best posture is for prayer, but I, knew, I do know that one time I backed up, and I fell into an open well. And my foot got wrapped about, around the rope, and, and there, upside down with my head in that hole, I prayed my most effective prayer. <laughs> There's no best posture for prayer in Scripture. But on this occasion, Paul says, I bow my knees which I think expresses a couple of things. One thing that, that bowing the knee expresses is the idea of worship. Because the psalm writer says in Psalm 95, 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And so it expresses worship. It also seems to express the idea of intensity. Because when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying that most intense prayer of all prayers, we're told in Luke twenty-two forty-one that he knelt down. And when Paul said goodbye to the elders at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, thinking it was for the last time, we're told in verse 36 that he knelt down and prayed with them. And so here when Paul tells us he bows his knees, he's indicating his passion and intensity in this prayer. And then notice how he addresses God. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Now, I've got the New American Standard. It says every family. Your Bible may say the whole family. It can be translated either way. I think the context would indicate that the best translation is the whole family because Paul has been talking for a chapter and a half about unity. It would seem strange at this point that he's talking about all our individual families. At this time, he's talking about the whole family, the family he mentioned back in chapter 2 and verse 19 when he said, we are of God's household. We are God's family. Some of us are on earth, some have already gone to heaven, but we are all one family because we have one Father. And why does Paul bring that up as he begins his prayer? I think it's to remind us that the God that we pray to is not detached and uninterested. He is our Father. And what's interesting is he adds the fact that he's the one from whom we get our name. We are God's family which means God's concern for us is a reflection on his reputation. See, if I, if I find a kid over here with no shoes on going through our garbage to find some food, and I say, well, what's your name? And he, he says, my last name's Leet, and Greg's my dad. That's a reflection on his dad, okay? We are God's family. He loves us as a father, and his reputation is at stake because we bear his name. See, he cares about us. And what's exciting to me is that Paul is certainly not shy in this prayer about asking for some big things. In fact, notice verse 16. He says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. Now, if a rich person gave you $10, he would be giving you out of his riches. But if he gave you a number of blank checks and he signed them and said, you fill them in for what you need, he would be giving you according to his riches. And that's what Paul says here. He says, God, I want you to grant this prayer according to the riches of your glory. Do you ask for big things in prayer? Or do you, without saying it, say, Lord, uh, maybe you could answer this prayer out of the spare change of your riches. Paul asked for some big things here. You say, well, what does he ask for? 
Well, essentially, he asked for four requests. And they're, they, they build on each other like a staircase that Paul climbs higher and higher in his aspirations for us. And the prayer is set up in such a way that you can't skip a step. Because he says, I pray this request so that this request will happen, so that the third request will happen, so that the fourth request will happen. This is a staircase. We have to take them a step at a time because they build on each other. And what I want us this morning to do is is look at those requests. The first request is in verse 16. He says that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Now, what is the inner man? Well, the inner man is the real you. It's the inside you. It's the spiritual you. Maybe we understand it better if we contrast it with the outer man. There's a great deal of emphasis today on strengthening the outer man. People run, they diet, they exercise, they do aerobics, they lift weights, they take nutritional supplements, they have facelifts, they take care of their outer man. My wife has some some things she wants me to do for my outer man this new year. Uh, You took good care of your outer man this morning. You got him out of bed, you washed him, you dried him, some of you smeared cream on him, you brushed his teeth, you combed his hair, you ladies put your face on, you men took your face off, you fed him, you dressed him. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, but Paul's concern is for the inner man. He used that phrase in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16 when he said, Don't lose heart, because though your outer man is decaying, yet your inner man is being renewed day by day. Your outer man is decaying. Your inner man is growing and being renewed. I'm a prime example of that. I can't dunk a basketball. Of course, I never could dunk a basketball. But I used to look like I could dunk a basketball. And now I don't. It's pretty obvious that I'm not going to make it. My outer man is decaying. Yet what really is important is the inside me. See, the outer man is not me. You, You can actually cut my arm off, and I'm still here. Take it away. I'm still here. What is really me is the inside me. And that's what matters. That is what Paul is praying about here. And he says, he prays that we will be strengthened in the inner man. Now, how do you get strengthened in the inner man? Well, I think he tells us in verse 16, he says, through his spirit. You see, the spirit of God is inside of me, and he wants to strengthen me, but he cannot strengthen me unless I cooperate with him. Because the Bible says that I can quench the spirit and I can grieve the Spirit of God. He is inside of me. He wants to strengthen me, but I have to cooperate, and the way I cooperate with Him is by yielding to His control in my life. Paul put it this way in Galatians 5.16. He says, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desire of the flesh. Now, what's it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means to order your life according to the Spirit of God. Moment by moment, decision by decision. Life is basically a number of decisions that you make every day. You wake up in the morning, you decide whether to get out of bed or not. You decide what to have for breakfast, Captain Crunch or Fruit Loops. You decide whether to have orange juice or coffee. You decide whether to put one teaspoon of sugar in or two. You make decisions all day long. 
You decide where you go. You decide what you say. You decide what you do. Walking in the Spirit is just yielding to the Spirit of God in every decision of life. That's what it is. It's to yield to Him, to let Him make the decisions in your life. And you know what you find? You'll find that when you yield control to the Spirit of God in one decision, it gets easier to yield in the next decision. It's just like exercise. You lift weights, and after a while, what happens? You start, it starts getting easier. And why is it getting easier? Because you're getting strengthened in your outer man. When I yield control of the Spirit of God, what happens? It gets easier to yield next time because I'm getting some spiritual muscle on my inner man. That's what Paul's telling us here. And along with that, I need the right nourishment. I need to nourish my inner man. And, of course, that happens through the Word of God. 1 Peter 2.2 says, Long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. And so I am to nourish the inner man by the Word of God, and then I am to yield to the Spirit of God to allow Him to strengthen my inner man to handle the decisions that I face in life. I think we need to learn from Paul to be concerned for the inner man. In fact, I bet if most of us evaluated our prayer life, most of us pray for the outer man. We pray about sickness, we pray about circumstances, we pray about physical things. Paul's concern was for our inner man that he might be strengthened. Let me give you a suggestion. Why don't you sit down and figure out how much time you spend each day on the outer man and then just commit that same amount of time to your inner man. Praying that he might be strengthened, nourishing him by the word of God and yielding control of his activities to the Spirit of God. That is Paul's prayer for you. That's step one, which brings us to step two. In order that, verse 17 says, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. You say, I'm confused. We're strengthened in the inner man so that Christ will dwell in our hearts. I thought Christ dwelt in the heart of every believer. Well, he does. And to understand this phrase, we have to understand a word in it, which is the word dwell. There are two Greek words for dwell. One is oikeo, which means to inhabit just to be there. The other is katoikeo, which adds the prefix kata, which means down. And that word means to settle down, to be at home, to abide in. Paul uses the word here, katoikeo. When the Spirit is in control of your life, he creates an atmosphere in which Christ is at home. And that's his prayer for us. A couple years ago, we had an odor in our basement. It smelled like something died, like a dead mouse somewhere. And my wife and I would go around and try to figure out where this mouse was. That smell permeated our house. We, later, we eventually found out it was a, a small gas leak uh, and, and corrected it. But, but when we were in the house, no matter where you were, you, you could smell this stench. So even though we were home, we weren't at home. We couldn't really relax and enjoy ourselves because the house stunk. You see, Christ dwells in you. And the question is, is he at home? Or do you have some odors, some, some things going on in your life that don't make him comfortable there? See, if you're a Christian, everywhere you go and everything you do involves Jesus Christ. Is he at home everywhere you go? Is he at home in all the things you do? When you sit down with a movie, is he, is he at home watching that movie with you? Is he at home in the thoughts that go on in your mind? 
See, why don't we, as Christians, love Him enough to let Him be comfortable in our lives? That's Paul's request for us. Which brings us to the third step, which is at the end of verse 17. In order that you might be rooted and grounded in love. Everybody's looking for love. And as the song says, they're looking in all the wrong places. Because these these verses tell us where we find love. When I'm strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man so that Christ is at home in my life, I will experience love. Because when Christ is at home in my life, His nature will dominate and permeate my life, and His nature is love. And Paul's prayer is not just that we would experience that love, but he says, I pray that you might be rooted in it and grounded in it. Now there he mixes metaphors. He takes one from agriculture and one from construction. His prayer is that we might be rooted in love. Last year, somebody gave me a couple trees. They were planted in his yard, said, you can have them. So I went over there and I dug the trees out. One of them was a big tree and one was a small tree. And I got home. And for the big tree, I dug a big hole and I got some topsoil and I put it in there and I made a nice uh, bed for it and I planted the tree. And then uh, about time to plant the little tree, it started to rain. And so I took the little tree over to the side of the house and I just made an opening in the clay and I stuck it down in there and I stomped on it. Well, it only took about a week or ten days, and I looked out, and the big tree was flourishing, and the little tree, uh, all the leaves had turned brown and were about to fall off. So I felt a little guilty about that. So I went out, and I dug up the little tree, and I dug a nice hole, and I got some topsoil, and I put it in there, and I, I I replanted the tree. I call that my resurrection tree because it came back with green leaves. It's still alive today, and I'm excited about that tree. But you see, that tree was not rooted in the kind of soil it could get nourishment from. And what he's saying here is that we need to be rooted in love so that we are, re, re, we are getting our resources, our nourishment, out of God's love, and that results in the fruit of our life. And then he uses another metaphor, and that is a building that's grounded. I once lived with Mike Smith in a house that had no foundation. Uh, it, it was just built on blocks. And... Uh, all the floors sagged and all the floors sloped and no, nothing was straight in the entire house because it had no foundation. And he's saying here, you need love to be your foundation because when love is my foundation, then I've got something to build on. Jesus loves me, this I know. That's our foundation. When I understand that he loves me, that's the foundation for the love that's produced in my life. A lot of us struggle with that because we haven't gone back to allowing the Spirit of God to strengthen us in the inner man so that Christ is at home in our lives so that that love can be both realized and manifest in our lives. It ought to be. That ought to be the norm. Jesus said in John chapter 13, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you carry a big black Bible. No. If you love one another. That love ought to be demonstrated in our lives. And just so you understand the definition of love, it's not Hollywood's definition. Love is not emotion. Love in Scripture is always an act of selflessness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. 
Love is always that act of giving, that act of selflessness. It doesn't say anything about how God felt about it. It says he acted because that's love. He gave the ultimate gift. And John said in 1 John 3, 16, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What is love? It's laying down your life. It's serving others. It's sacrificing. It's meeting needs. How does that happen? When I'm yielded to the Spirit of God. See, I see that in my own life. When, I, when I'm yielded to the Spirit of God so that He's strengthening me in my inner man, Christ abides in me, He's at home in me, and the result is that I find myself wanting to meet other people's needs. I find myself desiring to serve. I find myself doing things for people that I otherwise wouldn't do. Why? Because God's love is now being manifest in my life. And when we get to that point, Paul tells us, we're ready to begin to comprehend and know the love of Christ, which he mentions in verses 18 and 19. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. The word comprehend means to seize, to grasp, to lay hold of. And Paul begins to try to describe it. And he uses dimensions to do that. He says, it's the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Some of the older commentators say that that's a picture of the cross. The breadth, the length, the height, the depth draws the picture of the cross of Christ, which is the expression of love. Others have related it to Romans chapter 8 and said whether you go forward or backwards, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. But I think the essence of what Paul is telling us here is probably contained in the book of Ephesians. Because what is the breadth of God's love? Well, Ephesians chapter 2 says it encompasses Jew and Gentile. What is the length of his love? Ephesians 1.4 says we were chosen before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 2.7 talks about the ages to come. What is the depth of his love? Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 tells us it was deep enough to reach the deepest pit where we were dead in our sins. And what is the height of his love? Ephesians 2, 6 says it raised us up and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And so the breadth is anybody. The length is from eternity to eternity. The depth is that it takes us from the pit of sin. And the height is that it takes us into the presence of God and actually seats us on his throne. Now notice a couple phrases with me before we move on. Notice the phrase in verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints. What does that phrase tell us? Well, number one, it tells us there are no exceptions. You may be sitting here this morning, you're saying, well, so-and-so is, 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 is very loving, but that's just sort of the way they are. That's just sort of their nature. And I'm not really that way, and so that's why I'm not loving. Well, who does Paul say can comprehend the love of Christ? All the saints. And that includes you. But that phrase also tells us something else, and that is that we don't comprehend this love in isolation. You can't go into seclusion and learn the love of Christ. You have to learn it as you learn to relate to other Christians in the body of Christ, and that's not always easy. But we learn love by expressing love with all the saints in the body of Christ. And then the second phrase I want you to see is in verse 19. And that's the phrase, the surpassing, or which surpasses knowledge. 
This is a love that the world doesn't know about. This is a love that passes knowledge. This is a love that's only experienced in submission to the Holy Spirit. See, the world says, you're attractive, I love you. Christ's love says, I love by nature, therefore, since you exist, I love you. The world says, I love you till I find somebody better. Christ's love says, I love you forever. The world's love says, I love you till you offend me. Christ's love says, I love you even though you never stop offending me. The world loves for what it can get. We love for what we can give. And that's the love that's inside of you. The question is, are you rooted in it? Are you grasping it? Are you knowing it? So you can't know it intellectually. It's like the peace that passes understanding. It's like the joy that's inexpressible. It's something we can't understand and tabulate, but it is something that we can experience in our relationship with Christ. Which brings us to the fourth step. And that's at the end of verse 19. In order that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now I have to admit as a preacher that that boggles my mind. Because his prayer is that you and I might be filled with all the fullness of God. What is the fullness of God? That's the grand, glorious sum total of all that God is. There's nothing that we can comprehend beyond the fullness of God. And yet his prayer is that we might be filled with his fullness. Now let me try to bring that down to your understanding. What is your goal as a Christian? You say, well, my goal is to be like Christ. Well, that's really synonymous with this because who is Christ? He is the one in which all the fullness of deity dwells. And our goal is to be like Him. He'll later say in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 13 that our goal is to be, to be mature up to the fullness of Christ. He says in chapter 5 and verse 18, we're to be filled with the Spirit. And here he says we're to be filled up with all the fullness of of God. Amazing prayer. When's the last time you prayed that for yourself or for someone else? You know, when I read this prayer, my initial response is, Paul, you're asking too much. Your prayer is, is too high. It's too lofty. It's too much. And I think that's why he added the last two verses to chapter 3 because he knew we would think that. Notice verse 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us. Now if you break that down, he says, unto him who is able. He is not only our Father who is willing, he is our God who is able. And what's he able to do? He says he's able to do what we ask. That would cover Paul's prayer. But not only that, he says he's able to do all that we ask. Anything we would ask, he's able to do. But not only that, he's able to do what we think. You ever think of things that you might like to ask God, but your lack of faith keeps you from doing so? He can do that. But not only that, it says he can do all that we think or all that we ask. But not only that, it says he's able to do beyond all that we ask and all that we think. Now, let me ask you this. How much do you think God can do? Whatever your answer is, He can do more. Because He can do beyond all that you think. Not only that, it says He can do abundantly beyond 
all that we ask or think. And not only that, it says he can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. But you know, that's not the most amazing thing in verse 20. The most amazing thing is the last phrase. And it says, according to the power that works within us. You see, when God reveals his omnipotent power in answer to prayer, it's not some unique, extra special bonus provision. He simply works through the power that's already working inside of us to accomplish those things that are exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. That's pretty exciting. God's power is already working in me to accomplish those things. No wonder, he says in verse 21, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. God gets dividends on his investments. And in verse 16 it says, he answers this prayer according to the riches of his glory and the result is that he gets more glory. And how does he get glory? Obviously he gets glory through Jesus Christ, but he also gets glory through the church. And what is glory? Glory is the idea of advertising God. Let, let, me, let me help you understand that. Uh, when we go out, my wife spends about a half hour in front of the mirror before we leave the house. And uh, in that half hour, she is transformed before my very eyes. I won't tell you about the before, but afterwards, she's glorious. And we go out and we get in the car. We get in the car in the garage. And one of the first things she does in the car is she pulls down the little visor. And she checks the mirror. She hasn't even been out in the wind yet. But she's, she's checking to see how she's doing. But see, that doesn't bother me. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says she's my glory. She makes me look good. We see, God is spirit. And people can't see God. But we, the church, make Him look good. We bring Him glory. And how do we do that? We do that when we're strengthened by the Spirit in the inner man so that Christ is at home in our lives, so that we can be rooted and grounded in love and so that the fullness of God can fill our lives. You see, God wants to do that in your life because He's your Father. And he's able to do exceeding abundantly beyond that in your life because he's a God who is able. And the power to do it is already at work in you. So the only ingredient left is your cooperation. Are you willing to yield yourself to the Spirit of God to allow him to accomplish that in you for the glory of God?